first thing you'll see is the surgeon cower in the corner. So you folks do cancel some of our cases. What the hell do anesthesiologists do while I'm out? This is the pressing question I have. Hey, Howard. Good to be back. We have a guest this week. We have a really special guest. We have a doc that I've known for a long time now. My name is John Bauman. I'm an anesthesiologist in Westchester, New York. Having a surgeon and an anesthesiologist on the same podcast discussion can seem a little bit like that scene in Mad Max Thunderdome where the two men enter, <laughs> one man leaves kind of thing. Almost all non-trivial forms of surgery, maybe with the exception of hangnail removal, and probably not even that one anymore, are done with some form of anesthesia, right? That's right. I think most procedures will have some form of anesthesia involved, be it local, topical, regional. There are, there are various forms that you can employ to keep a patient comfortable during, during procedures. I think that's fair to say, even in the, the period of time that I've been practicing, which is approaching about 20 years, we've seen the increase in our anesthetizing locations. And for cases that when I first started, we didn't really give anesthesia for. One of the, one of the biggest areas where we've seen that is with GI physicians, endoscopies, colonoscopies, and upper endoscopies. When I first started, an anesthesiologist would be involved once in a while, but now, especially in, in this area, we are involved in almost every GI procedure, colonoscopy or upper endoscopy, and it adds a level of, of not only comfort to the patient, but I think a level of safety and it increases the efficiency. Right. So anesthesia has become safer over the last few decades, right? Uh, I mean, when I was a resident and coming up in my training, general anesthesia was the chosen mode for most procedures. Uh, yet now you seem to have many different offerings in your toolkit. Uh, there definitely are. If you look back, the real reason that anesthesia has become so much safer over the years is because the training of anesthesiologists has become um, much more rigorous. So the people who are practicing are, are well-trained and able to utilize the new technology to make sure that patients are safe in all different settings. So it used to just be, if you, if you were going to get anesthesia, it was in a hospital. We, we deliver anesthesia in, in offices and in, in GI suites and ambulatory surgery centers and all safely. One of my favorite books, and Howard knows this too well because I babble about it all the time, <laughs> is uh, one called The Butchering Art. It's by a medical historian named Lindsay Fitzharris. And it's great about the early days of surgery, in particular about how we had no anesthesia, so speed was at a premium. Uh, otherwise, people tended to have this bad habit of dying of shock in the middle of an amputation that if you could get it done in 30 seconds versus 60 versus two minutes, you were a better, you were a better surgeon because that's the way you had to compensate for there being uh, no anesthesia. And at the same time, 
the early anesthesiologist were generally just some dude who happened to be nearby. It could just be, hey, passing citizen. And you did whatever it was the surgeon asked you to do, whether it was holding the person still, which isn't really great as anesthesia, or you administered whiskey. Right. They basically would pour ether on a rag and, and the surgeon would say, hold this over the patient's face. Out of the early, what we would have called anesthetic agents, which ones of those have survived? I was thinking about maybe uh, nitrous oxide, maybe as an example of an early one that we still use. Are there, are there others? Yeah, nitrous is a very good example. No, mo most of the others um, we don't uh, use anymore. I, when I was trained, we still used halothane. A lot of the original agents have been replaced by newer medications that, that often have a, a better safety profile and a much better um, side effect profile. So let's go to the thing we've been dodging, or at least maybe I've been dodging, which is what is what is anesthesia anyway? In, in in the case of general, am I actually asleep? We say we're putting people to sleep, but we're not really putting people to sleep. People use these words really loosely, and I think they're not so well defined. So anesthesia, if you break the word down into its root, it's from a Greek root, and a or or an is without and. Anesthesia is uh, sensation or pain. So it's basically without, without sensation is the way to think about anesthetics or anesthesia, what anesthesia is. And anesthesia is a very broad term because you can, you can achieve a lack of sensation or pain through many different means. You can have a local anesthetic. You can, you can have a general anesthetic. You can have a neuraxial anesthetic. So there are all these different types of or, or ways to provide anesthesia. I'm trying to keep it very simple, is to induce a, a state of unconsciousness so that you don't respond to a surgical stimulus. And a lot of people think if you're going to go under a general anesthetic, you have to be put on a ventilator and you need to inhale gas and you need a breathing tube. But in actuality, you don't. It's not sleep per se, right? If we do an EEG, you're not clinically asleep. Where are you? Where's your yeah, brain? So <laughs> um so right we don't we don't actually know it's it's very funny especially with the inhaled agents we don't know how those drugs actually work there are theories behind them and it, it has to do with the lipid membranes and so we don't we don't actually know where you are but you're right it's not sleep it's not restorative the, these drugs you don't you don't wake up from a general anesthetic or a propofol infusion and your body has kind of undergone the restorative functions <laughs> of sleep. So we say you're asleep, but if you were asleep and I took a you know scalpel and, and cut your knee to do a, a total joint, you would wake up from that from that sleep. So this is much different. Now it's very unusual to have a patient under pure general anesthesia. Uh, what's brought about uh, this change in safety? Yeah, so so we don't have, there's not one drug that will give us all of the properties that we need for a, for a general anesthetic. So you want, before somebody goes into the operating room, you want them to be relaxed. You don't want them to remember the experience. So to achieve that, we typically use a class of drugs called um, benzodiazepines, which uh, the most common one we use is a drug called midazolam or the, the 
trade name is Versed. And the, the properties, it, they, it relaxes you and causes amnesia. So those are two good properties. We also, during surgery, we don't want you to have pain. So some of our, there, and there are a lot of, you, you, I guess you're kind of getting the sense that this is more of a, a cocktail of medications that we give to get all the, all the properties you want of a general anesthetic. So for pain, we often use narcotics. Yeah. You want to induce the general anesthetic. And nowadays, the, the typical, and, and there are many induction agents, but the one we use probably 90% of the time is a medication called propofol. Propofol is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest breakthroughs in anesthesia in the last, it was developed in 1989. That medication is very nice. It's, it's a very quick onset. It induces a general anesthetic. So, and that'll, that'll get us into the next phase of a general anesthetic, which is muscle relaxation. So we have medication that will do that. The, the problem with that medication is you can't give that alone because it does nothing to, to affect your mental capacity. If I were to give a drug, let's say called rocuronium, which is a, a common paralytic or muscle relaxant that we use, but not give you any other medication, you would be wide awake. You'd be completely aware of everything that was going on <laughs> right. around you. But you couldn't. No, that's bad. <laughs> right. So, so, and typically to maintain the general anesthetic so that during two, four hour operation, we'll use one of the inhaled agents. And that's, that's delivered through the breathing tube into your lungs. And that will maintain anesthesia for, for basically as long as you keep that medication on. Mm -hmm. And then when you want the general anesthetic to, turn off, you let the patient breathe typically 100% oxygen and they blow off that inhaled agent and that's how they wake up. I see. Okay. And then maybe the most important question, what, what the hell do <laughs> anesthesiologists do while I'm out? This is the pressing question I have. <laughs> Basically what we do while the surgery is going on, it's really a dance with the surgeon, to be honest with you. If you're really practicing anesthesia correctly, it's you're having a conversation, whether or not it's spoken, but you're having kind of a, a dance with the surgeon. So you're paying attention to what the surgeon's doing throughout the surgery. Not only are you monitoring the patient's vital signs, which is constant, but you're looking, you may have a, an operation where all of a sudden the surgeon hits a vessel and there's a lot of blood loss very quickly. Well, if you're not paying attention to what that surgeon is doing or what's going on with the patient's vital signs, you can have a very bad outcome from that. So let's say the alarms start going off in the OR and it's something to do with the, with vital signs. What typically, what, what do the surgeons just say, yeah, not my table? I mean, this is an anesthesiologist issue that, dude, you should be watching those vital signs closer. Typically what happens is when the alarms start ringing and, and something's going on, the first thing you'll see is the surgeon cower in the corner. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Thunderdome. So... A lot of times that's when that's that's when the conversation really heats up, right? So you want to figure out very quickly why why that alarm go off or why did the patient's blood pressure suddenly drop? Why did the heart rate suddenly increase? And there you're you're now you're troubleshooting, right? <laughs> you'll you'll ask the surgeon, hey Howard, did you just get into bleeding? Maybe maybe it's a case where there's an additional stimulus that you weren't ready for. Maybe the surgeon just injected a local anesthetic with epinephrine in it. 
there are a lot of different things that can, that can cause a change in vital signs. It can either be due to your anesthetic, it could be due to something that's happening with the patient, or it can be due to something that, that is going on surgically. From my perspective, if, if it's worth anything, I, I, I don't cower in a corner. I, I tend to the head of the table and help, but it's also a very <laughs> yes. It's also a very individual response on the anesthesiologist's part as well as the surgeon's. You really don't know um, your anesthesiologist well until you see them in one of those moments, and those moments are don't happen frequently. Some may run out the door and yell for help. Some are going to just. <laughs> quietly manage it and communicate with you, just like every other workforce member, right? Uh, there's good and there's bad. And the same thing with surgeons. Some will cower, some will run, some will get angry, and some will step up and help. I was looking at the numbers in terms of general anesthetic. It's safer than most things we do, probably safer than getting on freeway, something like seven in a million General anesthetic cases worldwide die, which is a, a remarkably low number. Patients come to the holding area, to the operating room, and they're all very anxious. And the majority of them are anxious because anesthesia is this great unknown. And they have a relationship with their surgeon. They've talked about the surgery. They, they know what they're to expect on that front, but they've never met me, me before. They've only heard horror stories. And they're, they're worried. So one of the things I use is, is exactly what you just said. Say to them look, you had more risk coming to the hospital than you do from me in putting you under a general anesthetic. And you didn't think twice about getting in your car and coming here. This is actually safer than you driving to the hospital. And I think that that often puts people at ease. It's, it's meant to, and it's, and it's true. One of the challenges with anesthesia is we, we only have five or 10 minutes to make a patient comfortable with us caring for them and, and, and taking their lives in our hands. Again, versus uh, the surgeon who's had time to sit down in the office and explain things. We're, we're just some random person saying, hey, <laughs> guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to basically put you in a coma for two hours and then wake you up and send you home. Part of the, I guess, art of anesthesia is to make that person comfortable and understand in a very short period of time what it is you're going to do. Why is that important? Why should I care? What impact does that have on surgical outcomes, the, the, the depth of, of, of insensation that I'm in in general? Do, what, is there any sort of measurable difference it makes in the case? No. So I don't, I, I know um, years ago, and I wish I could quote you the study, but yeah, they, they haven't been able to show a correlation between comfort level going into a surgery and outcome. Like I saw, However, I, I remember when my kids had their wisdom teeth removed, they, the, one of them was really nervous and upset going in. And when mm -hmm. he came out the other end of the, of the, of the process out of the general anesthetic, he was, he cried for about 20 minutes, which was baffling to me. And then the surgeon said to me, and I, I have no idea if this is true, but he said, often people who are feeling uh, really emotional going into a procedure that is mirrored on the other side as they come out. We, we see that. But again, there's nothing, there's no data to support that. It's anecdotal. Yeah. But I absolutely see that. And especially in kids often we'll say a kid is kind of, we expect them to wake up the same way they went to sleep. Yeah. So you folks do sometimes in the morning cancel some of our cases. So the, the way you, you kind of risk stratify 
a, a surgical procedure and the anesthetic. It has to do with the type of procedure that the patient is going to have and the medical conditions that that patient has. For example, if you're coming in for a very low risk operation, so, so you're going to have cataract surgery, yeah, which is a very low risk operation, but you are a high risk patient. You have cardiac disease and you had stents placed and you had, you have emphysema, whatever it is, because that, that surgery is so low risk, the only way you're really going to cancel that operation is if the patient is in active disease on the day of that operation, right? So if they come in and they say, hey, you know what? I woke up this morning. I'm really having a hard time breathing or I have substernal <laughs> chest pressure or something like that. Take that, that uh, you know, now if you take kind of, you flip it and you take a very high risk operation, like a, an open aortic aneurysm repair. And you have a patient who's otherwise relatively healthy um, coming in for this, this very major high-risk operation, and they say that, that they've had a history of hypertension and in the past have had chest pressure with walking upstairs, but that kind of got better and they don't think it's a big deal, and they haven't seen their cardiologist before the operation, you're probably going to cancel that operation and say, you know what? You need to have that pressure in your chest checked out. It may be nothing, but before this operation, you need to go do it. So we're not going to, you need to see your cardiologist. So we're not going to, we're, we're not going to go forward with the operation today. No, that's what I was driving at. There are a lot of comorbidities that we as surgeons need to look out for and look into before uh, we send the patient to the operating room. Sure. Uh, and if we don't, then an anesthesiologist is going to speak up and say, we really shouldn't go forward. But that, that relationship can go awry sometimes since some surgeons may not take that very well. There was a kind of an old school of thought, and I'm generalizing, but that the role of an anesthesiologist was to cancel a case. So if you didn't have all of the labs ordered and an EKG and a chest X-ray and this slew of testing, the anesthesiologist was going to cancel the case. Yeah. So you better check off all the boxes and make sure even your, your healthy 25-year-old who runs marathons and is coming in for a knee arthroscopy has gone through through chest x-rays, EKGs, that's been seen by a cardiologist because you're worried that, that one of us will cancel the case. That's changing a lot now, but there is still a little bit, and, and a lot depends on where you practice, but there is still a little bit of, of headbutting, I guess, between surgeons and anesthesiologists. I think it's probably less than it used to be. Yeah. Is there a liability factor there that, that's, that anesthesiologists are concerned about, or is that even part of the picture? Yeah. So, it, it, yes, we think about that. Because when you're in the operating room and there's a, there's a negative outcome, there are really only two physicians who are to blame for that, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. If we're looking to make sure that the patient is going to have the safest experience in the operating room that we can offer. And in order to do that, it's not that the patient can't have hypertension or can't be diabetic or can't have emphysema. We just want to know that those, those medical issues are all optimized, that they're on the correct medications, and they're in the best shape that they're going to be in before coming to the operating room. We'd, we'd never want to see a patient get hurt because of something we did. 
On the topic of canceling surgeries and comorbidities and what have you, has COVID changed that at all for you? Oh, sure. We saw firsthand the outcomes of of patients who are critically ill because of COVID and what happens when you put them on on ventilators when they they don't do well. So I think it's heightened our our kind of sense of risk in the operating room of of putting somebody who we think may be COVID positive or exposed or have any symptoms from it on a on a ventilator in the operating room or doing a procedure where we may have to ventilate them or sedate them or affect their breathing. Because I think we all know that that they can do very poorly very quickly. Does that also factor in in terms of aerosol production within it with with intubation? So Basically, every patient who comes to the operating room nowadays has to have a negative COVID test unless it's uh, it's an emergent or or very urgent operation. The problem is, as we all know, these these tests are not one hundred percent. And being anesthesiologists, and we are in direct contact with patients' airways, so their their mouth and their nose and their breathing, and we're sometimes inches away. Uh, our I guess threshold for risk has changed because there's an increased risk to a patient, but there's also increased risk to the people, everybody in the room, including and probably especially the anesthesiologist who's who's at the head of the the bed managing the patient's <laughs> right. airway. Yes, yeah, you're facing a deadly orifice. Exactly. <laughs> that's a, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> there's always been a fascinating dynamic uh, between anesthesiologists and surgeons uh, once we're in the operating room. I personally uh, see this as a shared responsibility issue and certainly feel that we're both in charge uh, and we're there to to complement each other uh, during the course of their duties and job in the operating room. But our sense is uh, this complicated dynamic or dance between surgeons and anesthesiologists uh, can vary dramatically. Uh, yes, you know? but I do think I, I think that the setting in which you practice kind of dictates that relationship a little bit. And 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 what I mean by that is I came I trained at a at a big academic institution, and there are a ton of residents and there are a ton of fellows. And you, you don't ever really form that relationship as an anesthesiologist with the surgeon that you do in, in a you know, small community hospital in a private practice. So, so, so there is some of that kind of, I don't even know if you want to call it a hierarchy in the, in the OR, but you do see that dynamic every once in a while. My experience in private practice is it's, it's seen less in that environment because you end up spending, I know, I know most of the surgeons better than I know the people in my department because I spend so much time in a room with them. And the, the, the <laughs> dynamic, sure, typically, sure. Okay. look, if, if you want to, again, I, I think in the operating room, the way I see the relationship between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist is it's a partnership. You have the same goals in mind. I, I try to get along with every surgeon that I work with, because again, you need an open, open line of communication for that time when something goes wrong. If you don't get along, if you don't speak to that surgeon, if there's going to be chest beating and I know what I'm doing and you don't know, then that patient's going to get harmed. Yeah, yeah, if you have a relationship yeah. 
and, and Howard, I'll use us as an example, where if there's any question or there's a concern, either one of us can look over that blue screen and ask the other, is everything okay? What are some of the most common questions you get? I think of the ones that I, you hear, what if I don't wake up? What if I don't fall asleep? What if I wake up in the middle? My, my question, I was saying to Howard earlier, my question was, I'm convinced that anesthesiologists have lied to me for years. Because when you would get wheeled into the OR and I'm on the gurney, and Howard's going to laugh at me here because I told him this story already. I'm convinced because it always is the same drill. The bright lights, the music's coming on, someone's talking about Spotify or whatever. And then you've got a line in your arm and something's coming down. He's like, this is just a bit of saline. And then whammo, I'm out. I've always been convinced that they lie to me about what's actually in the line, the IV line, because I'm trying to put me at ease and it actually is the drug they just didn't want to tell me <laughs> um, you know what uh it, it's possible <laughs> that they are doing it i try not to lie to my patients but i'm sure there are anesthesiologists that 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 do that so that's all the ones i had in terms of faqs but what about real people and not crazy ones like me what what are some of the questions you get in terms of the most common the the what if i don't wake up what if i do wake up and i'm i'm frozen in a paralytic and can't tell you how how horrible this is are these the kinds of stuff you get asked yeah, the, the biggest one is, what if I wake up in the middle? Uh -huh. Or I don't want to wake up in the middle, or make sure I don't wake up in the middle. Yeah. So that That's probably the most common one. That's an actual instance. Oh my God, it, it's it's incredibly uncommon to have happen. But one, one of the things, and this is why I think it's so important for the anesthesiologist to communicate to the patient well beforehand, is we do a lot of operations now under what we will call sedation. And during that sedation, so if if you're gonna do what, what people think of as a general anesthetic, so you put them on a ventilator and the breathing tube, you can basically guarantee that, that that patient is not going to remember anything throughout the surgery. When you're doing cases where the surgeon's gonna inject some local anesthesia and you're just gonna sedate the patient by, by whatever means the anesthesiologist, whatever drugs they decide to use for that, during that sedation, there is a chance that the patient is going to have some recall or recollection of what's going on in the OR. So we know that they're comfortable in the operating room. But there are times throughout that procedure where the patient may have some awareness or may kind of open their eyes and look on it. If you let the patient know beforehand that that's a possibility, that yes, you may, you may at times in the OR have some, some memory you may join in on the conversation. You may you may talk to us, but you'll you'll always be safe. You'll never have pain, and if something bothers you, you'll be able to tell us. I've never had a patient complain about that, or 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 have concern about that. So I think the communication is incredibly important, and and as long as you put them at ease and say that that is not going to happen to you, they're they understand that they're in, in good hands. I hope, but yeah, that that's what their fear is: is that they see in that horror movie. They're paralyzed. The surgeon <laughs> right. is removing their gallbladder, and they can't do anything about it. And then, and then, a lot of people have a fear that they won't wake up, which is should be low on their list of concerns, obviously, because once you put them on oxygen, they don't have too much choice in the matter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Craziest question you get asked by people? I, I very often get asked how long I've been doing this for. Oh. <laughs> so that that's a very very common question uh -huh. yeah and and it's always the same response this is my second day 
I, I just can't help myself. So let's let's jump to futures then. If you imagine yourself 10 years from now and you're looking back on the things we do today, if you had to look, what would you then think was barbaric or I can't believe we were still doing that or that's changed so radically since then? What sorts of mm -hmm. things would you imagine 10 years from now have changed really radically or if, if any? Yeah, so when they first started to try to automate anesthesia, I think we all got a little bit nervous. But realize at least now the technology isn't there to to achieve that. So that that's kind of fallen off the radar a little bit of most anesthesiologists for there to be an automated system that can actually work. Because I think there's there's too much of the human interaction that you need, especially with, with any automated system. God forbid the, the system is wrong and maybe gives a little bit too much anesthesia. And I'm sure there are going to be some automated systems that make us a little bit more hands-free. There's one thing that we've never been able to, to prove. There have been studies to suggest it. We've, over the, over the course of my career, we've started to utilize what we call regional anesthesia much more. So nerve blocks, where very similar principle to when you go to the dentist and they give you an injection in the back of your mouth and your whole mouth gets numb. One of the things at one point everybody was trying to show was that regional anesthesia was going to have benefits for certain types of cancer surgeries. So I'd be curious to see if some of our techniques in, in 10 years are, are shown to, to decrease risk of, of metastases or recurrence or you know, even improve wound healing or recovery. So now with medical students uh, who are rotating with surgeons uh, during their training, it's not unusual for them to be hanging out above the anesthesia screen with you. Um, what advice uh, are you giving them um, while they're on our rotation? or perhaps a rotation in your own specialty. Uh, anesthesia's changed a lot over the last two decades. Uh, are you uh, trying to talk them into a career of anesthesia, out of a career in anesthesia? The, the practice of anesthesia, so to me it's something, if you, if you really enjoy critical care, if you enjoy being in the operating room, if you like doing procedures, but you, you don't necessarily want to have your own patient population. And I guess to take that a step further, one of the things that especially new grads who are looking at anesthesia like is that you can have a little bit more of kind of a shift work mentality. So if, if you have other priorities in life, you have your evenings and you have your weekends. You could also join a practice where you have more of a hospital base where you're going to take call, you're going to do bigger cases. So one of the nice things with anesthesia is you have a variety of, of options when it comes to a work environment, but you also have a variety of options when it comes to patient population. And if, you, if you're somebody who really likes the practice of medicine, but doesn't want to have an office and prescribe medications and treat hypertension over, over six months or years you can you can treat all of those illnesses in the operating room and get the results you want in a matter of minutes i think it's a fantastic field it allows you to to deal with a ton of different types of cases and types of people and 
and personalities and you get to be in the OR and you get to do procedures and you get to help patients. I just want to echo that really briefly. I've seen tremendous changes in my anesthesia colleagues across the decades and they're they're far more involved in the management of the patients in terms of managing their pain and their, and their comorbidities um, and they are responsible for a lot of the success that we have on the back end in terms of the patient getting home and being comfortable and not being nauseous and vomiting and being sick it used to be a very big problem. And certainly working with John, my patients would compliment him <laughs> more often than they would compliment oh, me. Oh, that's very good. I always think of anesthesia as we're, we're perioperative consultants. Uh-huh. So we're the, we're the consultant for everything around the surgery, preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively. And it's just kind of a nice way, I think, when I'm describing what it is we do, think of an anesthesiologist. We're the we're the perioperative consultants. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, Th- thanks. thanks, Howard, for organizing it. My pleasure. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. Content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.